Good morning and happy Saturday. For those of you that are new, welcome. And for those of you that are returning, welcome back to the Torque and Thrust Talk Show, episode number 10, Barbecue or Fire Pit. My name is Bill, and on today's show, we will talk aviation, gaming, and automotive news, learn industry terms with jargon and a jiffy, help you build a pathway to success with Career Corner, live listener Q&A, and our discussion this week, our favorite seasons of the year and why. Joining me this week is fellow co-founder of the Three Green Simulations Group, retired NYC EMT, and flight sim extraordinaire, Tommy D of Level Flight Simulations. How are you doing today, Tommy D? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. Um, I, as you know, we were just, we were literally just talking about it before we got cut off to start the show. Um, had my first trip back after two weeks, which it's always difficult kind of dusting the rust off. Um, great captain. I had flown with him previously, uh, but man, anything that could hit the fan, Tommy hit the fan. Um, we had leg one. I had a single FMC operation cause my uh, flight management computer failed. Um, and then we ended up flying without it basically back to Chicago. Then the third leg, right before we pushed, we lost our left, uh, inertial reference system, which is a navigation source. Uh, we're able to reset that. Um, then the next day, I think it was Raleigh Durham Tracon had a computer issue, which caused them to delay us because now they had to do like 15 miles in trail spacing. Um, and then we, when we got down to, uh, Houston on our second leg, we were taxing out and we got reports that there was a passenger getting sick in the lavatory. So we almost had to return, but they got sick and they were okay. Um, and then also that night they were training. I, it felt like in Houston, they were training new air traffic controllers. So it was an absolute cluster getting out of there. And then going into Portland, uh, it was only reporting like a maybe 15 gusting 25 knot crosswind. And usually you only have to deal with that on landing the last like 200, 300 feet. Um, but no, we got our, our, our butts handed to us all the way down. It was a rocking and rolling ride. And that's why I texted you. I was like, yep, that was, that was interesting. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it definitely was interesting. Excuse my, uh, my jingle bell- bells there. I just started moving. Um, but yeah, so that was my week. So it was good, but it was a very, I worked a lot this week. So what about you, Tommy? Uh, work wasn't too shabby. You know, things are still a little ramped up with the Christmas season. Uh, we are, um, two weeks from ending peak. So I expect it for the next two weeks. Okay. Uh, the boys were doing good. Um, family is good. Uh, otherwise, nothing too exciting. A little under the weather, but nothing that uh, some Gatorade and Motrin can't fix. Gatorade, I'm telling you. So growing up as a kid, I hated Pedialyte. Um, but as an adult, it's a magical thing. I don't know what changed, but just having those extra electrolytes in the body. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So Great. Great uh, Pedialyte. There's where my preference is. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, actually, that's the one I like, too. It's like the grayish purple. Is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Yep, that's that's my jam. That is my jam. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better, Tommy, because I know Thank being you. under the weather sucks. So I'm glad you're feeling better. Um, plus, the show wouldn't be as interesting if it was just me talking about stuff. So I'm glad you're here. <laughs> uh, oh, I will so, be here. I will lose a limb and still be here. It still be. I I do appreciate the the dedication. Um, but we're actually changing things up a little bit today. Normally I would start off with aviation news. Uh, but today we're actually, there's actually quite a bit of gaming news, right? Tommy, that we want to talk about today. Some very so, exciting gaming news, exciting gaming news. So we're actually going to start with gaming news. So if Tommy, you want to take it away. Sure. One of the first things that Bill and I would like to share with you guys is the trailer to GTA six. Um, 
we've been speaking about it for a couple of weeks. Uh, and we're very excited about this because you're going to see a bunch of content come out and from the both of us, which we'll probably be playing the multiplayer server together. So, yes. Bill, why, mm -hmm. why don't we go ahead and get that trailer rolling? Yep, so everybody, volume should be all leveled up, but it's right here on the top part of the screen. I don't know why it's showing my name above my head. You can just ignore that. Uh, but yeah, let's take a look. I'm going <laughs> to mute my mic. Tommy's going to mute his mic, and we're going to take a look at the GTA official from Rockstar North Gaming, the GTA 6 official trailer. Here we go. Now, for those of you listening to this podcast as a recording on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts after the live airing, we understand that you can't actually see the GTA 6 trailer that we were watching live. So feel free to go to the YouTube channel, Rockstar Official North, to see it, or come to our YouTube channel at the Torque and Thrust Talk Show to be able to watch us watch the new GTA 6 trailer. Tommy, what do you think? What do you I, I, Oh, I'm I stoked for this. I am, I am very, very oh. stoked to play this game. So one thing that I noticed when I first watched this um, this trailer, and it, it just it kind of struck me kind of weird. I I was under the impression it was going to be a completely, um, like a completely new. What's the what's the term? Open map. I don't know what. Yeah, like I thought it was going to be like a new storyline because you know, like uh, San Andreas when it came out in GTA Five, it was a completely new uh, concept. It was there was nothing else like it. Uh, but as you could tell, Vice City, that was a it's a 20 year old remake, basically. So GTA Vice City came out in mm -hmm. 2002. Um, it was one of many in the lines, uh, but one of the big ones. So Vice City and then it was Liberty City, GTA five and now GTA six. So when I first saw the opening scene, I was like, um, are we just going to be doing a huge remake of GTA six? But then I noticed that there was a lot more like the airboating and the, the different sections. So the original Vice City was just the uh, so the city of uh, Vice City. It was just the two little islands and stuff. It wasn't a whole lot. That was back when they were still developing their huge um, open map concept. Uh, but now it looks like they're basing off. It's based in Leonida, or uh, um, I think I'm saying that Leonida, which is based off Florida. Um, and according to Rockstar, it's their largest and most advanced evolution of the game yet. And they did say yet. So there's hope for more, but that's what the current release is saying. So it's going to be a gigantic map. Well, with Rockstar, right? GTA is the feather in their cap. It is. And I think they're saying yet because we're, we're going to see more GTA games as we go. Also, when GTA first came out, they didn't have the technology for maps and doing what they did with the game. Right. 20 years ago now with everything that's going on i wonder how much ai they're going to be using how much ai is actually programming the game i mean our cell I mean, phones have more memory than the computers we were using for the first gta right and they're and they're, they've also developed i don't know if you've ever heard of um real engine uh, it's a computer programming software that allows 3D rendering of real-life objects. Um, and it's actually available to the public if you want to build, like, animated 3D scenery and stuff like that. That's a um, a huge program that they use. And they have their own patented engine, which we could see. Because the graphics, even from GTA 5... Now, GTA 5 was released in 2013. So, it's been almost a decade. So, you could see the difference in the quality. I was looking for that little disclaimer, too, that was like, this is was it simulated graphics may not result in in the thing but it didn't say that so that yeah, didn't say that at all so that's the graphics we can expect um uh, one th two things that are kind of disappointing 
not disappointing, but I wasn't expecting is the 2025 release date. Um, that's a lot of room, so hopefully they don't delay it, but I was expecting a little bit sooner than that, but it's understandable developing a game that size after the pandemic. Um, and then also, Tom and I were talking about this, their only confirmed release in 2025 is for Xbox and PS5. PC has not been announced, uh, but the thing is, is that's generally what happens with Rockstar. They usually release the console, and about a year later, it'll be PC. And the main reason is, is because they work out all the bugs on the Xbox side itself, because it's less potent, or uh, less, what, what's the word? It has less potential to be hacked versus GTA on PC, because the first thing people are going to do on PC is going to go try to break the game. We, we got to see how that's going to work out, because I know there's a lot of PC gamers like myself and Tommy uh, that would like to play it in 2025. I do have an Xbox. I haven't used it in forever, but I'm holding on to it for this release. So leading up to 2025, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm going to stream it for you all <laughs> from my Xbox, because if it's not available for P- PC, I don't know what we're going to do. So Back to the old days of going live on the phone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can. I think you can actually go live on Twitch from your Xbox, and you can actually like I can hook up my Logitech C920 up there. There's ways I can do it. I just got to research. I have until 2020, April of 2025, to figure it out. So. Yeah, I think we got right. a couple of minutes. We we could uh. <laughs> we got a little. You know, bit we'll, we'll get this figured out. We, we got a little bit of time there. <laughs> a whole nother okay, Christmas the- will come and go. Yeah, exactly. So with that, I'm gonna let Tommy take the floor. I just we were both excited to show you guys the GTA Six trailer. Um, so I'm gonna give Tommy the floor to talk about the rest of his gaming news for this week. Okay, thanks, Bill. We have two uh, updates in the gaming community today. Um, for those of you who are the Modern Warfare Three fans, you may or may not have noticed you got a three gig download and update uh, this week. The one is the new season, season one of modern warfare 3 it's based on makarov and two new maps were introduced one of them is in the mykonos islands which is actually really really cool the other part for those of you who believe cheating is the way to go there's a lot of anti-cheat software in there so aimbotting wall hacking a whole lot of that stuff is going on and they up their security. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Activision was recently bought by Microsoft. Microsoft is not going to tolerate the amount of cheating. Um, there have been reports that even going back into Warzone, that semi-pro, quote-unquote, pro players, one or two kills, and they're either shadow banned or perma banned. So Microsoft is definitely taking this game in the right direction with the anti-cheat software. The other piece of news I have is I brought up um, Spider-Man 2 last week. This game is hugely popular in the gaming community right now. And according to IGN, which is the International Gaming Network, they had their awards just recently. And Spider-Man 2 won nothing. They won absolutely nothing, and that has caused quite a bit of an outrage. Was outdone by Baldur's Gate 3. I'll be honest with you. Never even heard of Baldur's Gate. I think it's a role-playing game. Um, COD and Modern Warfare on the last stage actually beat it out, and this has caused a lot of controversy on the inside of the gaming community, especially those people who are going absolutely bonkers right now playing Spider-Man 2. I have not gotten the game yet. I've watched trailers. I've watched some people on YouTube play it. The gameplay actually looks pretty awesome as far as 
problem solving and moving on with the missions and putting the bad guys away. But I'm going to be watching this for a little bit longer because something's not right in Denmark. Uh, a game that was so widely received by the gaming community all of a sudden gets shot down at the awards <clears throat> by Modern Warfare 3. Don't get me wrong. I personally enjoy Modern Warfare 3 and Modern Warfare 2. It gives me a platform to hang out with my friends and game. But what's right is right. If you have a game that is superior to Modern Warfare 3, that should be recognized. Yeah. Oh, no, I needed you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, here I am. That's tag team. (laughs) (laughs) So the next bit is Kansas for American Truck Simulator. Yep. Bill and I lived this uh, last week before he went to work. And it was an absolute blast. The rendering that the developers did for the Kansas DLC pack. Bravo, ladies and gentlemen. Bravo. You did not disappoint. Um, Bill does have a five-minute video on his (laughs) YouTube. um, And TikTok. And TikTok for the funny moments. And it was great. I think I watched it probably five or six times by now. I think I, I honestly think that's the best highlight video because normally what happens is Tommy and I are like, do we want to stream it? Do we not want to stream it? Now nah, let's go drive around, and then we have the funniest content occur while we're not streaming and we're not recording. There's no way to like clip it, and that's generally how it goes. And then this this when we were rolling around the DLC, the new Kansas DLC, there was just while we were streaming it, I we were just capturing these gold moments of comedic content. And I was like, that's okay. I need to make a highlight video of it because it's rare that we get a stream and the content. Normally we stream and nothing funny happens or interesting happens. It's just us driving around Kansas City DLC or Kansas DLC. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, hats off to SES um, and their development team. They've done an absolute amazing job. Graphics are good. The 1.4 uh, 1.49 update is very noticeable, especially with the cloud boxes and the new HDR color range. Um, it, more noticeable with the sunsets, but also the cloud formations and stuff as well. I have yet to see the lightning uh, visuals that are supposed to be updated. Um, I have not seen one yet. So other than that, but other overall, great job. Um, I think Tommy and I still have about four more cities to visit before we've mm-hmm. visited every, or discovered every single city um, in the Kansas DLC. We also got the Farmer Pack DLC as well, so we were carrying large loads all around uh, Kansas City. So if you guys want to check that out, there is a five-minute video on my YouTube channel, Captain Bill Official, or also on my TikTok at Captain Bill Official as well. Sorry, I keep jingling because of this thing. I'm trying not to move so much. because I move Actually, it's not so bad. I don't even really hear him. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm wearing my uh, Christmas sweater straight out of the North Pole. Um, so if you hear jingling in the background, you're not going nuts. That's just my my sweater. My Christmas sweater has uh, bells all over it. So, All right. Well, with that, uh, it's my turn now for some aviation news. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to start off as we normally do with – I'm sorry. I misread that. This week in aviation history is what we're going to start off with this week. Uh, this week, we're looking at December 1st, 1783 in France. Of course, anything in the 1700s with aviation are generally in France because that's where the Montgolfier brother was. But in the December of 1783, uh, J.A.C. Charles and another man make the first trip in a hydrogen balloon flying 27 miles from Paris to Nestle, France. I think I mispronounced that. Nestle, France. After landing, Charles go up again by himself, achieving the first solo balloon fight, flight. Excuse me. So now we're starting to see people utilizing uh, the hot air balloon for air transportation. So they're starting to get the ideas of 
hey, we can use this to transport people rather than trying to follow roads and going through road conditions, stuff like that. We can just fly people where they're going. Um, in terms of the article, more recent news for this week, we're going to be talking about the United Flight Attendants informational picketing. This comes from Simple Flying writer Joe Kunzler. So uh, United um, AFA, which stands for Association of Flight Attendants, uh, intend to hold an informational picket at 20 airports uh, seeking support for their parties and a sense of urgency from the airline on December 14th, so in about five days. Remember, informational picketing is not the same thing as protesting. Uh, or I'm sorry, or striking. Informational picketing is just a, a public way to inform the traveling public on what is going on and to put public pressure on the company to come back to the negotiating table and finish up the negotiations. Uh, the pickets are peaceful demonstrations by off-duty flight attendants to push for a contract or the legal authorization to strike. The United AFA is requesting mediation due to United Airlines stalling on reaching a new contract, and they are also pushing for ground time pay to compensate for non-flying duties. They are, as far as I'm aware, at the company, they are the last ones still negotiating. Um, and so I understand their frustrations being a pilot because while we were negotiating, um, I believe it was the dispatchers, then the maintenance technicians, and the ramp agents, everybody else was getting their contract ratified while we were sitting there trying to figure out why ours wasn't getting ratified. So I understand the frustration. Um, and then ground time pay, uh, I'll go over that in a second. Uh, basically, to try to cover pay for the critical duties that they do, and actually technically that we also do, uh, but that we're actually not paid for. So there have been 121 days of face-to-face -face negotiations during 26 months with the company, and now there are only eight closed sections of the contract versus the 26 sections. So over 121 days, that's roughly about four months uh, during 26 months of negotiation uh, there's only eight sections that have been done so very little progress on december 1st the letter to members from president uh, afa president ken diaz showed that united airlines management was staffing and not agreeing to a timeline for get or stalling excuse me and not agreeing to a timeline for getting to a new contract so the union leaders are seeking federal mediation the united afa is not just asking for boarding pay but for a concept called ground time pay or compensation for non-flying time while on the clock so this includes ground time pay uh which would i'm sorry ground time pay would include cover um for critical activities such as boarding, waiting for a flight, and deboarding. So just to kind of put that in perspective, I did a TikTok video on this. It's it's on there. It's uh, Enos Key posted a video about uh, why do pilots get paid so much, and there was kind of a lot of misinformation in there about how we're getting paid as well as how the flight crew is getting paid as well. So when you guys are boarding the airplanes of passengers and you see the pilots up there setting up the flight deck, the flight attendants are doing their cabin checks and greeting you on the airplane, making sure everybody's seated and doing everything, um, we're not getting paid for that. The We're not getting paid at all. Uh, it's We do that all free right now, which is it's where the rub is, right? Because it's critical, safety critical stuff that we have to do per the FAA, and we're not getting paid for it. Um, if there's a delay and the doors open, like for example, let's say there's a weather delay going to Newark and we're sitting at the gate and the doors open, none of us are getting paid. There is no delay pay. Um, let's say we have a three hour sit waiting for the next flight to go out. Don't we? We're not. We're just sitting there for free. Anytime over on our overnights. Um, where we are just spending time in a hotel away from our family, we're not getting paid. The only time airline pilots and flight crew are paid is when the door is closed, our parking brake is released. And in some airlines, it doesn't start the pay until it senses the wheels moving, so uh, pushing back. And so the flight attendants 
are way more safety critical than we do. They're the ones that have medical training on the aircraft. Um, we know where the medical equipment is, but we're not trained to use it. The, the medical professionals are the flight attendants. They're trained in first aid and how to use all the medical equipment. They're also trained on multiple aircraft. So pilots, we are trained to fly one airplane or a variant of airplanes like the 737 one at a time. The flight attendants have to be able to fly and do uh, remember and learn all the safety procedures and equipment and the specific things for every single airplane in the fleet because they have to be able to fly every single every every single one. So with that being said, to say that they deserve more pay is an understatement, especially this ground pay during the delay. They're the ones that are getting a brunt of like customer service questions and realistically the flight attendants are the face of our airline of any airline because once the flight deck door closes and we're not out there greeting people the pilots are kind of out of sight out of mind and it's the flight attendants that are handling customer service so they do a lot for the airline they do a lot for passenger safety so for them to be asking for ground pay and stuff like that i think is a reasonable ask uh, the problem is is and this is everywhere we talked like i said we talked about a couple uh weeks ago on a other episode a previous episode of ours that the american flight attendants are in the same situation that the company is not progressing in the contract negotiations um kind of for similar they're asking for similar things as united flight attendants but this is happening everywhere so the reason i'm talking about it i'm obviously pro-union uh, but it's just something that you guys should be aware of that that is what's going on so quick question yeah when the pilots union reaches an impasse usually a federal mediator comes in doesn't it after a certain uh, amount well, of time and once those hoops have been jumped through you have to request so if there is an in, it's called an impasse. If there's an impasse, you can request um, uh, mediation from the National Labor Relations Board or the National Mediation Board, and they have to agree that you guys are impasse, and then you go into what's called a 30-day cooldown, um, which is basically well, I'm sorry. So they come out and they negotiate, and then if there is still um, uh, impasse or they still haven't agreed, then you go into what's called a 30-day uh, cooldown, which there nobody's negotiating. And then at the last week or two, you go into what's called super cooldown, which is basically you bring everybody back to the board and try to negotiate again, like hard for before the 30 days is up. Because then after the 30 days, if there's still no agreement, then the uh, mediation board or the National Labor Relations Board will release them to self-help. It's no. they don't and we don't want to get to that point because that's a that's bad because that'll cripple that'll hurt the travel industry pretty good. So oh sure. Now does the flight attendants union have that same option available? <clears throat> yeah. So we're all under the rebel uh, RLA or the Railway Labor Act. That's where all this comes from because we all kind of follow fall under essential transportation. That's why we can't just wake up one day and go strike. So if you, so everybody, so flight attendants and pilots, any flight crew fall under RLA. So with that, that's all I got for aviation news. And this week, Tommy will be covering some on of motive news today. So take it away, Tommy. Thank you. Well, for those of us who are fans of Tesla, I was kind of looking around motor trend, wondering what I was going to talk about. I came across this article about a gentleman who lives in Germany. He has a 2014 Tesla Model S with over 1.2 million miles on it. This gentleman drives about 130,000 miles a year. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Motor Trend had thought they sent someone over there to go have a little chat with him, see how did you get a vehicle to last that long? And aside from being a stickler for maintenance, brakes, because even though you know it's a Tesla, it's a car brakes, 
tires, alignment, all the maintenance things that you would find in a non-electric vehicle also happen with a Tesla. He has replaced the rear motor unit 13 times because the rear motor unit for this specific model only lasts about 85,000 miles, no more. He's also replaced the battery pack three times. And I, I can't imagine that being cheap, but you get about 300,000 miles on a battery pack when it's brand new. Some of the other things that he also does, and I found this kind of interesting because everyone can see him now, the local gas stations where you live, they're all starting to pop up uh, with the Tesla charging stations. I know where we are, we have sheets, which is a big, they're not corporate, but they're a mama and papa and they're in uh, Pennsylvania, Virginia. I believe they might've sprouted into Jersey. Sheets has a big thing with Tesla right now where they're installing the charging units for all of their cars. So you see people there all the time. His reliability on this, he never ever charges or overcharges his battery behind beyond 100%. Says usually he will only charge till about 80% and just kind of let it ride from there and plan his trip. Because with the Tesla, you have that option where you bring up the map and it shows you all the charging stations along your route of travel. He even got a phone call from Elon Musk congratulating him when it turned the 1 millionth mile. But yeah, I just found that really, really interesting because uh, I probably will never drive a Tesla. Um, they're decent cars. I'm not a Tesla person. But I, I found it interesting on this guy must be a, a Tesla super fan or something because he takes care of it the way I would take care of a 1949 Cadillac. Him and the vehicle have been Africa, Austria, China, Morocco, Sweden with his vehicle and he just ships it. So he probably has some sort of monetary means. But here's the, here's my, here's my question though with that is obviously you said he shipped his car, right? Mm -hmm. and how many times did he replace his battery over the, a million miles? whatever it was three the battery pack itself oh. was replaced three does the article say how much that cost because obviously the guy has oh, some no. money. Yeah. <clears throat> oh this guy's yeah he he's got a pretty decent so, bank account yeah so i'd say realistically we're probably not expecting to for a no, no not a at all normal I mean, person to, to be able to <laughs> to have I'm a hearing stories that these battery packs are 15 17 thousand dollars yeah so realistically See, I hate stats like that too. Not not you, Tommy, like your presentation. But I mean, stats like that are like, oh, it made it to a million miles, but then you have to look at the cost as it what how much it cost to get it to a million miles. You know what I mean? Because how oh. many miles was it on it when he had to replace the first battery pack? Because they tell me it's worth seventeen grand. I'm gonna say yeah. I'm gonna go buy another car. So we could according to the information in the article, we can safely assume that the car was right around three hundred thousand miles when he replaced the first battery pack at that point he's already been through two rear motor packs because they're only good mm. for 85 so actually more than that three on his way to four so are rear motor packs just as expensive uh, that i don't know they just kind of brushed over it because he's been through what did i say six yeah oh, um here, i'm gonna look it up real quick while you're talking uh what is it called a rear motor 
A Tesla what? Rear? 13 motor. times he's replaced it. It's the rear motor unit. Rear motor unit. So I'm just <clears> looking <throat> it up on Google. $11,750. That's a down payment on a brand new Tesla. That is. So he's replaced or that house. three times plus the battery six times, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. no it's, the at, rear motor? As as... 13. Yeah. 13 so... times he's replaced it. Yeah, so obviously, man, that's such a bad because people are like, "Oh my God, the Tesla is amazing!" No, 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 no. 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 <laughs> no Aside from fact... its powertrain and it being electric, oh, the only difference is it's electric. It's not internal combustion. Well, and the thing is, you can't. A lot of people try to argue with like fuel cost and like the money you save with oil cost. It, I, it's not gonna, it's not gonna counteract six. Or you said thirteen times. So what is that like? Uh. 13 times 11. Oh, God. 30, that's almost as much as a house. Yeah, this guy has paid. Not only did he pay for the Tesla, he's mm-hmm. had to have paid for it 16, 17 times over. Yeah, it's that's too much. I, if, I've if i always told myself if the cost of repair is worth more, uh, excuse me, if the cost of repair is worth more than my blue book value of my car, I need I'm getting a new car. Because yeah, that's there's absolutely unless it's a classic, like you said, like a 1949 Cadillac that you're restoring, I'm not gonna do it. There's there's no way. That's actually what happened to my first car. The transmission went out. It was only worth like three grand to replace the transmission. Would have been like five. So I said, sayonara. <laughs> I gotta get yeah. a new car. Okay. Well, then it is time for our favorite segment of the show, Tommy. You know what it is? Oh, it is time for jargon in a jiffy. Jargon in a jiffy. I am like the. The little theme song that I put in there for the recorded part on the podcast, I've just it's playing in, in my head right now. Bum, mm. bum, bum, bum. So, Jargon in a Jiffy uh, is a word game where Tommy and I try to stump the other person um, with words from our industry. Uh, so, each uh, Tommy's uh, career as a EMT and as a safety specialist, and mine as a pilot, we all have our own nomenclature and words and verbiage that can sound foreign or intimidating to other people that aren't familiar with it. So the whole point of Jargon and Jiffy is to help you all learn some terms and definitions of the words that we use in our industry. So without further ado, Tommy will start off first. Uh, Tommy will say the word or phrase and then say it in a sentence, and then I'm going to try my best to try to guess the right uh, <laughs> guess the right definition. So go ahead, Tommy. So this week, my term is bunny hopping. Okay, and here it is. I was the lead truck going to the hospital, but I was bunny hopping with two others. Okay, so immediately what I'm thinking of is you're leading, but like you're getting stuck in traffic or you get stuck behind somebody, kind of like we do on American Truck Simulator, and then the other two kind of go in front of you or the other trucks go in front of you, and then they end up getting stuck behind traffic, and then you go in front of them. You're very close. You are very, very close. You're not that uh, far. Uh, that's all I got. That's <laughs> I thought I was hitting a home run with that one. I'm honestly stumped if that wasn't the exact definition. Okay, so you are 94% there. Oh, man. When we're bunny hopping, yeah. say we have three trucks on a call. Okay. Only one truck is going to have that patient right now. <clears throat> that's right. Oh, okay. Um, generally you will see things like this when the patient is a baby. Okay. And we will bunny hop, which means you'll be in your truck. I'll be in mine and we're going to take the lead 
the truck with the patient is coming up last. You're going to pull through, you know, you're going to, with due regard, pull into an intersection, block it off. I'm going to oh, blow okay. ahead to the next intersection, get ready to block that one off. That way, the third truck with that patient in it slows down as little as possible. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, it's basically like escorts where yep. the, like the rear unit will race and block and then so on and so forth. And you guys just keep doing that. Yep. And, um, lots of civilian complaints with this. I, I mean, wait, really? Why, oh yeah. Why would they because complain? when, if I'm blocking off and your truck passes me, I'm hammering yeah. down to come up behind you and I'll get on the radio. I'm like, Bill, I'm Bill, watch your left. And then you'll see my truck jet out and I'll just wail past you generally on okay. the opposite end of traffic. You know, if you're on like a two lane road, so it can be safely done don't like that. Well, you know what it is. If, if grandma and grandpa are driving down the boulevard and next thing you know, there's a mm -hmm. 120,000 pound ambulance come wailing at them with its lights going, they get nervous. I mean, it's, it's sirens pull over. That's like, that's <laughs> like, that's, that's, just, yeah. that's how it you goes. Would think, you know, but, you like, know. In the world we I mean, live I, in, everybody's got a gripe. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of, I, I'm not complaining, but there was one time uh, back in June where I was traveling. We were driving down to Texas to see my parents and going through the back roads of Oklahoma. Uh, I remember turning around a corner. It's a two-lane farm road. And turning the corner and seeing an ambulance and a uh, police car like just head on at us just screaming and so i immediately slammed on the brakes and tried to get out of the way they were going somewhere quick but it was coming right at me so i wasn't really upset but it was it was startling to come around the corner and see that but they're emergency vehicles you know if, if they got to do what they got to do there's a certain extent of the law that they can disregard in terms of traffic policy if they're going to an emergency so like i said i can kind of understand being startled about that so for my word this week it's called floater um, and now that I'm reading it, I realize that could have multiple meanings, good and bad. So we're talking about aviation. <laughs> so the term floater in aviation um, in a sentence goes like this. Make sure you have good energy management coming over the threshold. You don't want it to be a floater. Oh, I got this. I do this all the time in the sim. Yeah, I'm like softballing you. This one was a softball. Yeah, yeah, you lob this one in. It's when the aircraft, when you're coming in and you're over the threshold, it stays airborne. It floats because you got have to bleed off more energy to actually get it to settle. Uh, kind of. That explains why your landings on the flight somewhere like that. <laughs> no. Yeah, because so, I, you know, oh, my approach speed 138. Okay, I'll come in at 160. Yeah. So that well, and that's exactly what it is. So a floater is not a good thing. You don't want a floater. So a lot of people think that the purpose of or the, all landings in an airliner have to be soft and they're not there that's not that's so far from the truth um i do have a tiktok video explaining that a lot depends on the situation if you're landing in a uh, 5700 foot runway in uh john wayne uh county in uh, california you on a 737 you don't want to float um so your goal we do we do have a special short field landing procedure for the 737 at my company uh, which includes touching down at the thousand footers and if you're not down by the thousand footers you're executing a go around um, but that's a firm landing right on there. Those That's something where you don't want to float. But yeah, so a floater is when you come with the excess energy, or sometimes it's, it may not be excess. It may be built into the approach speed. For example, that Portland landing I was telling you about. Um, we always factor in with no wind, it's going to be our minimum ref speed, right, for approach, plus five is our target approach speed. 
we can add up to 15 knots on top of that to compensate for gust. It's half the steady or half the headwind plus the gust factor. Um, so going into Portland, um, it was a direct crosswind, uh, but it was a full 15 knot add because it was 10 gusting 25, but full crosswind is what it was. Um, so my ref was, let's say it was one, I think it was 144, but my target approach speed was actually 159. So I was coming in pretty fast. Now, as good pilots, we try to compensate for that coming into land. Um, we know that we're carrying the extra energy. So things we can do to help uh, avoid a float is pulling out the power a little bit earlier, getting closer to the ground before we flare. As we're pulling out the power, that gives us a quicker touchdown. Um, but just being cognizant of that extra energy. But what a lot of time happens, especially if you catch a bad gust in the flare, is you'll end up floating. So either you're coming in with too much energy, so either you're coming in, you're sinking really fast, um, and then transitioning to a flare, like flaring really high, and that gets you floating because of the extra lift. It could be ground effect, or it could be excess airspeed that you're carrying in due to wind or due to pilot error, and you get what's called a floater, um, which means you float down the runway unintentionally. Uh, like I said, that's never our goal, but it does happen sometimes. Uh, that's why certain landings are a little more firmer than others, because there's certain airports and runway conditions uh, and weather conditions that we don't want floaters on, if that makes sense. I just thought it was it was appropriate, because I could use Portland as, a as an example. example. Yeah. I actually, now, I um, this was the second easiest. First one was when was you were talking one? about the uh, the boards or the speed brakes. That's right. Yep, that is right. That that's correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was. Oh, you know what? The first one was rabbits, but you weren't here because you had you, your dad. Um, oh, yeah, I was on my way to Georgia then. We needed that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I was like, I thought that was the easiest one, but I forgot you weren't you weren't on for that show. But uh, yeah, so floater is the word, and I I'm trying to think. I Portland wasn't a floater. It's just I worked to get it on the ground. But but once again, it could have been a floater if I didn't take into account the excess energy and the winds and such like that. So, but that is uh, jargon in a jiffy. Up next, let's talk a little bit about Career Corner. So, Career Corner is where Tommy and I talk about our professional careers. Me being an airline pilot, Tommy being a EMT in NYC or in New York City for 32 years, and still a current licensed EMT for his current job. Um, and obviously, myself, I said I'm an airline pilot. I've been doing it for working up to seven years. It's about six and a half. March will be seven years as an airline pilot, but I've been flying for 14 years, so half my life I've been a pilot. Um, we talk about in Career Corner the different building blocks you need to get to where we want just in case you're interested in becoming an airline pilot or a medical professional like Tommy D. So rather than just have no idea what you're doing, we're trying to help you all get a blueprint to get from zero to hero in our career fields. So up first, Tommy's going to be talking about week number seven, clinicals and pharmacology. Thank you, Bill. Welcome to week seven, everybody. We have finally gotten out of the kinematics of trauma and all the related classes to deal with trauma. I bet you're happy about that. I know I was. This week, we're going to go ahead and we're going to continue our clinicals. And that's going to go basically to the end of the class. Till you get everything done. Because a lot of the benchmarks you need to hit with these clinicals that's if you're going to be able to take your exam or not. If you don't get what you need done, like the 12 patient contacts and X amount of hours in the, on the ambulance and in the emergency room, you're not going to be able to sit for your exams. And that's why 
we start it so early in the class. We provide you with more than enough time to get the minimum requirements, to get all of your time in, to get your contacts in, uh, get your paperwork filled out, get it to us for approval, so that way we could file it with the National Registry. So with that, and when we're in class, we're going to start the beginnings of pharmacology. Now, as EMTs, there's a limited amount of medications that we give, with the biggest being oxygen. So let me say that again. The biggest drug that an EMT uses and administers is oxygen. People don't think of it when they see the green-topped aluminum cylinders, but oxygen is actually a prescribed drug. It does fall under your medical director's DEA number, and it has to be prescribed monthly, believe it or not. Even though we might go through three, 4,000 pounds worth of oxygen in a day. Uh, some of the other medications we give are baby aspirin, we nitro, um, albuterol for breathing problems, uh, Narcan for opiate overdoses. There is a, a myriad, and it depends where you are in the country. It depends on how much medication is on that ambulance with a couple of EMTs. When I first started, when I first started rolling out in the 1990s, I didn't even have an AED. The only thing we had was oxygen. And now here we are three decades later, we actually have our own med kit on board to deal with what we need to deal with. Pharmacology is sort of interesting. It's a lot of memorization because let's just take nitro. The nitroglycerin that we give to someone having cardiac chest pain, and it's called non-reproducible chest pain. We'll talk more about that in about three weeks. Um, you have to know indications, contraindications, um, what it does and what it doesn't do to the human body. You have to know everything about it. Not nurse or doctor level, but not that far off from it. So there's going to be a lot of studying and a lot of memorization. Me personally, every time I had gotten a new drug and we were going to be tested on it, index cards were my friend. I'd put the name of it and then I put my indications, contraindications, pathophysiology, all that stuff <clears throat> on that uh, index card. I think now I got a stack that's about an inch thick of them somewhere in my apartment. But we're going to continue our clinicals. We're going to have about four or five days worth of lecturing on pharmacology in and of itself. And then also breaking it down, we're going to be breaking into groups and continuing our skills. The patient assessments, splinting, bleeding control, airway control, um, oxygen administration, the AED, when to use it, when not to use it. But this is one of the shorter, I won't say shorter weeks because we're still dealing with a five-day week. You know, we'll just call it business hours. But pharmacology, it's is very, very dry. But with that, Bill, that will bring an end to week seven in the EMT school. Well, thanks, Tommy. That's uh, That was week number seven of EMT training. And things are getting a little more simplistic now with, uh, with the aviation industry. So if you remember correctly, we started off with uh, step number one, which was a discovery flight. Step number two was your private pilot uh, license. Step number three was your instrument or commercial time building. Step number four was getting your commercial license, uh, whether it be multi or single. And then step number five is going to be your CFI, CFII, uh, just basically your time building. Um, and then we talked about 
the airline interview step last week because uh, we're now starting to diverge more into the airline interview portion just because I have more experience with that than 135. But now you've gotten through your airline interview, you've gotten a CJO, you've gotten a class date, you're the day prior to you starting your first day as an airline pilot at the company of your choice. So what can you expect in terms of that? So the first week, regardless of what whichever airline you're going to is most likely to be what's called basic indoctrination or basic indoc. Um, and that's, I'll explain it here, but there's a variety of information that's going to be coming to you. And this is basically get you up to speed on the airline and get you pointed in the right direction. So for airline basic indoc, it can be everything from one week, which is what I had at Envoy. Envoy was a one week indoctrination at my current company. It was two weeks, uh, which was good because there's a lot of information and it didn't feel like it was crammed with that Envoy that one week. It was like drinking from a, two fire hoses, if you will. So the first thing you can expect is a welcome, right? Because it's it's a pat on the back to say, hey, you've made it. Take a breath. Welcome to your first airline job. Or for some others, maybe your second airline job, uh, so on and so forth. But it's, it's a big deal. So take a moment, take a breath. You've made it. But just remember, after that breath, you got to focus because it does get pretty intense over the next couple of weeks. Um, the first thing you'll be doing is you'll be... Uh, most likely doing a lot of HR paperwork. Um, so that's stuff like signing up for benefits, uh, enrolling in like uh, medical, dental, vision insurance, life insurance, um, as well as getting set up for your ID, your flight deck privileges, like the jump seat, um, as well as taking pictures uh, for your ID, uh, stuff like that. There's a lot of busy work in paperwork. I remember I had a stack of papers about that thick, about probably four to five inches thick of different things I had to sign to get done and so on and so forth before you can actually start with the airline. So that's probably going to be day one. Um, so paperwork, benefits, ID pictures. Then a little bit later in the week, you're going to start understanding a training outline. So what to expect in your training. Now, the nice thing about, I think all airlines now in the United States, they're AQP or advanced qualification programs. Um, so they're very well laid out. There's a syllabus um, that's most likely going to be made available to you in those first couple of days when you receive your company-issued um, EFB or electronic flight bag that you can start looking through so you can kind of ex- see what to expect over the next coming weeks. Um, then you'll go through what's called non-specific or non-fleet-specific training, which is like flight operations manual, uh, operation specifications, so things that are generically applied to the flight operations, but not specific to the fleet. Um, So the way it works in the airlines is you have a flight operations manual and you have a flight manual. So a flight manual specific to your aircraft, all the limitations and operational procedures to your specific aircraft. But then you also have a flight operations manual, which is company policy. Uh, So for myself, for example, I have a 737 that I have to know the limitations and operational procedures of the 737 specifically and all its variants, which at my company, we fly the 700, the uh, 800, 8 max, 900, 900 ER, um, and 9 max as well, and eventually the 10 max. But also on top of that, there are culture and safety regulations and operation operation specifications that are specific to the company but not necessarily the 737 so that encompasses the 737 it's just kind of a general operation parameters as well so you do have to know both um, now at the regional airline um, we just read through every single page of the flight operations manual it was wild it was like i said drinking from a fire hose um but don't worry, it's you're gonna feel like you're gonna be behind that first week. But just as long as you kind of read up on the FOM and FM on your own time, you won't get too far behind. Um, at my current airline, it was two weeks, which made it a little bit more bearable. The first week was more of kind of getting uh, all the paperwork done, getting everything set up, so where we were comfortable and get to know one another in our class. In my class, there was 47, uh, 44 of us. 
But then the next week is when we kind of start diving a little bit into the major bullet points of the flight operations manual. But more importantly, they taught us how to use the search function in our iPads because ultimately they don't want you to necessarily memorize the entire flight operations manual, but you should be able to search something to be like, can I do this? Type the search function and go find it. Next week, I'll be talking a little bit more about uh, systems training, which is generally what comes next. Oh, and one thing I also forgot to mention is during Airline Basic Indoc, usually on the second day or first or second day, you will bid for your airplane and your um, base. And the way that works is there's a staffing department at the airline. And based off when you're set to graduate a couple months down the road from your airline or from your training, they're predicting what ours is called manpower planning. They're predicting where they need pilots, and that's what will come up. So it'll be like 737 Chicago, 737 Newark, 737 San Francisco. And based on your seniority, you'll go down from the most senior person and the most junior person in class. In my class, it was based off age. So I was the third youngest, so I was third from the last to be able to pick my airplane and base. But the very first person goes, I want the 737 in Chicago, and that gets crossed off, and there's one less, and there's a a finite amount per base. Um, So the more junior you are, be prepared. You may not get what you want. Um, I got the 737, which is what I wanted, but I also ended up in San Francisco. Um, Luckily, I was able to transfer to Chicago pretty quickly, but the bottom 14 were must-fills in San Francisco. So once it got to the last 14 people of seniority, if there was still those 14 slots left, then that's what we got. And I did. I got 737 San Francisco. So that's all you guys can expect for Career Corner and Airline Basic Indoc training. Like I said, next week we'll talk a little bit more about systems training. Um, up next, we're going to do a little bit of our viewer Q&A, our live Q&A here. I did have something Discord from Franco, uh, one of our loyal uh members of our Discord group and follower of both Tommy and I's social media. Uh, Franco was asking me to explain the process uh, from becoming a first officer to a captain to a line check pilot. Um, So to put it as simply as I can, a lot of it's based off um, qualifications and and your seniority. So you have to be senior enough, be at the company long enough to be able to hold the captain position. Um, for the qualifications, there's minimum FAA requirements, which is generally speaking a thousand hours second in command of part 121 time. And then the company may have their own on top of that, but minimum is per the FAA. So once you have the minimums and you're senior enough, you can upgrade to captain. And then once you're captain, uh, there are also minimum requirements per the FAA, as well as per the company to be able to apply to be a line check pilot. That varies per airline uh like i said uh at envoy i want to say it was 300 hours as a captain um in the airplane i think it's 100 hours pic in the airplane and a 300 hours total with the company minimum um as a captain before you could apply to be a line check pilot um I want to say it's been a while since I've read those, but that's what it was at Envoy. And then you apply, and it's this formal application process. You get interviewed and stuff because it's a special position because they're trusting you to evaluate the line pilots, captains, and train new pilots as well. So it's a very important position. Um, and so that's every now and then it's based off need. I was lucky enough um, and fortunate enough that when I wanted to become a Czech pilot at Envoy, uh, everybody, all the current Czech pilots were leaving my current aircraft and going to American Airlines via the flow. So there was a desperate need for Czech airmen, which helped get my foot in the door. In the door. So it's still one of the most important highlights um, of my career was being a Czech pilot. 
So, Franco, I hope that answers your question. A very good question. If you guys have any more questions like that, uh, and it's after the show, you want us to answer it on a live show, just go to our Discord. And uh, if you go down to the Torque and Thrust Talk Show category, there's a channel listed as live uh, channel qu- or live show questions, and that's where we can pull some of your questions from. We'll transition us then to our net, our weekly discussion topic, which is the meat and potatoes of our podcast and what our podcast titles are named after. But this week we are talking about our favorite seasons, so Tommy's favorite <clears throat> season and my favorite seasons, and why those are. Uh, our favorite and then i also did some research last night um and the night before about some scientific reasons why certain seasons may be better than the others so tommy if you'd like to take it what is your favorite season i am a fall guy okay i, and why I, I enjoy the fall the most um now even though i enjoy family stuff like um when the better half and i go to the beach and you know, hang out on the Jersey shore and stuff like that. I absolutely love it. Sometimes I have a little bit of a problem adapting to heat. Hence, I only lived in Florida for five years. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's more so humidity. I'm, I'm not a humidity type guy, but yeah, I, I like the fall. I like to see the leaves change, especially where I am in the Northeast. Now it gets very pretty here during the fall, all the different reds, yellows, oranges, you know, and I'm surrounded by mountains. So I get no matter where it is I look, I get to see that. I and won't say that I'm awestruck, but it does make you realize, like, wow, look at that. That that just looks awesome. You yeah. know? And the other reason is I'm a I'm a huge New York Ranger fan. I, I've <laughs> been into hockey forever and fall that just signifies the hockey season is here. That's true. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I Honestly, for me, I'm more of a spring person, um, and that is because I don't like the cold very much. Uh, so in El Paso, um, which is where I grew up, it's a high-altitude desert. We didn't really have much trees to watch the leaves change color. Um, any grass that existed just turned yellow. Um, and in the desert, it gets cold. It does. So those those winters were cold it was weird though because it was super sunny outside but then it would get cold in el paso like uh at night you'd get down into the teens sometimes um and all i remember growing up is i just couldn't go out because it was so miserable because it was so cold um and then spring was kind of the nice in between because then summer my god summer would be like you know 100 plus degrees uh through a majority of the summer with little to no rain um el paso is known as the sun city because it literally the sun is shining 360 days of the year um it's and it's true. I grew up 18 years there, and I can attest that is absolutely 100% accurate. Um, so I am more of a spring person, just because in El Paso it was either cold, hot, and then spring was like kind of the nice in between. And to me, spring and fall were almost synonymous with each other because there was no visual indication or difference between the two because the temperatures were pretty much the same on either end. There's no humidity, so there wasn't that difference between air drying out and you know, uh, versus air becoming more moist, uh, in the spring. So for me, I was more spring and more so now too. I'm a huge baseball fan. Um, I love, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. So baseball season, spring training ends. And then our first game is generally around March or April. So that's my jam. I also like getting out and doing that sort of stuff. Although I will say moving to the Midwest has kind of made me more of a fall guy because like Tommy was saying the change of color, I just, it's unbelievable to be driving down, 
uh, to my house, and we have a canopy of trees nearby that I have to drive through, and they turn the the most beautiful shade of like goldenrod orange, and it is the it's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. We didn't do that in El Paso. In El Paso, everything turned brown and died in like a day. Um, so I think I'm gaining more of an appreciation for fall nowadays. Uh, but I'm still definitely a spring guy. Um, I like spring fire pits. Fall fire pits are good, but you get to the point where it's just it's getting too cold, like to even bear a fire. Like the fire pit's not warm enough type of deal. Whereas in spring, I feel like I can barbecue and still do fire pits, especially early on. It's like things are starting to come back. Everything, especially the foliage, everything's new, right? That's the whole point. Is it it sheds off the year's worth of or uh, six months worth of stuff, and then it's it's new. There's just something so refreshing about spring, and that's why I'm a huge spring fan. So, kind of at kind of I just I people who say they like winter are psychopaths, in my opinion, because <laughs> <laughs> who. Who I don't, who enjoys being that cold? Like that's and just being miserable and not being able to go outside. Tell you who, the people who say they like winter are the ones that don't have to go out and shovel the driveway. That's who it is. That's right. <laughs> you know, my, my thing is. was the the people who liked the snow were the ones who never had to go out and work in it. Yes. Yep. I mean, I've done one of my first winters because I grew up in El Paso. I went to school in Florida and lived there in Florida. My first real winter was in Chicago, my first year as an airline pilot. And when I tell you I nearly died, Tommy, I nearly died. That was it was it was so cold. It was like um I remember where I currently live. That's been the coldest I remember. It was negative twenty two without wind chill. Um Ugh. and then I've also flown during the polar vortex a couple times, uh the, the two that we had. And I have my my whole setup. I have a was it what is that thing? It's a it's a face covering, but it's like a ski mask. Um, oh, the Balcava. Yeah, underneath my my knit cap, and I'm you know I got gloves, and I'm trying not to get frostbite while I'm doing my my walk around. Um, so I don't know, I really don't know how people are like. Winter is my favorite. Now I understand Christmas, obviously. I got Christmas up in here. Even Schultz, oh you can't see him. Schultz has his his here. I'll turn this. Schultz has his Christmas sweater on too. Oh yeah, um, look at him. He's all ready yeah. to go. He's all set. I just need to get him a Santa hat. Um, but so I'm all about Christmas, but I I don't think I think a lot of people say they like this time of year, the season, because of all the holidays, right? Because fall into winter is with all the holidays. But I don't think they actually like winter for the weather because it's miserable, especially in the Midwest, in the East Coast, and anywhere north of like Oklahoma. <laughs> it's just absolutely miserable. Um, but and then summer is just too hot. I just it's. I used to be a huge summer guy. That's why living in Florida wasn't too bad. But summer's just, it's getting way too hot. Like when it's 105 consistently over like five days, we had this, that this last summer. My lawn was dying. I couldn't do anything to help it. And it was just too hot to go. It was unsafe to go outside and do anything. That is the weather that my better half absolutely loves. I don't, she likes the summer. She absolutely loves it. I can't, uh, I I, you know, and. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't like, know why. <laughs> it's, it's just too hot and miserable. And when you get dehydrated, which I don't know if it's more of a, like my water retention as adult is less than when I was a kid, but it's miserable. It is absolutely miserable to be out there and sweating. You know what I mean? Like um, this last summer when I visited my parents in El Paso, uh, we went to go see the AAA uh, Padres team, which was called the Chihuahuas. I, I wear their merchandise all the time on live streams and uh it was 105 degrees outside 
And my wife and I were just absolutely just sweating. It's been a while since it's been that that warm. And my parents are fine. They're like, oh, it's just a it's just a dry heat. And they're like, there's a breeze. And the breeze, I kid you not, was probably 110 degrees. Mm-hmm. Like it was it was so unbelievably hot. So that's yeah, summer has kind of fallen from grace from me. Um, winter is definitely the bottom of the barrel for me. It's winter's not bad because I like the holidays, but I don't like the weather. Uh, I've lived in Snowmageddon. Uh, uh, was it 2019? I've shoveled too many too many inches of snow. Let's just put it that way. But you're ready for some st- statistics, Tommy? I am. I am ready for the scientific person. part. So there was a, this. Uh, let's see. CBS News Minnesota uh, through Value Penguin ran a survey. This was in September of this year, so September 7, 2023. Um, a total of 1,600 participants. Obviously not representative of the entire United States, but a sample population. 45% said that fall was their favorite time of year and 24% said summer. So fall and summer, according to this are the top two. Uh, they didn't mention what the bottom two were, but I'm assuming it's going to be spring and winter because winter in the North sucks. Now, obviously this was Minnesota. So depending on where you go, it probably changes, but um, of 1600% of participants, 45% fall. I've seen that number multiple times through different articles. So fall is most people's favorite time of year. And honestly, fall, I can, get behind because it's a lot like spring especially with the pretty colors and stuff when the the trees turn but also halloween is fall i love halloween hence schultz so i can kind of get behind that but now let's talk about health wise right because tommy's a medical professional um so i did some research this week i was curious if there was a link between a person's health and whether it be physical or mental and the time of year I always thought that would be interesting to see if there was a link. Um, and this comes from the National Center of Bio- Biotechnology Information, National Library of Medicine, and National Institute of Health. Um, Dr. Hamayo Gia and Dr. Erica Lebetkin did a study in 2009 uh, called Time Trends and Seasonal Patterns of Health-Related Quality of Life Among U.S. Adults. And basically, this is what it's summed up to. Humans are physically healthier in the summer than in winter. Um, and I believe that probably had to do a lot with the ability to be physically active, right? Which makes sense because in the mm-hmm. summer, there's more days where you can be physically active. But mental mental health, humans are mentally healthier in summer and winter. So in terms of mental health, the spring and fall are the worst times of year for mental health. And I don't know. Summer, oh. I think it's because you get more vitamin D. There's more activities. There's more socialization, I feel like, during the summer. And the winter, I'm thinking just holidays. I'm thinking Christmas, like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Because well, this was po- this was based off a of U.S. population only. It wasn't talking about like Europe and stuff like that. But you see, the winter is a double-edged sword because I could tell you beyond shadow of a doubt, in the holiday season, and let's just call the holiday season Thanksgiving to New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. I've been on more calls with people who have lost loved ones during that year that are yeah. now alone with more. Oh, and clinical depression. And really, they just wanted someone to talk to. Talk to, yeah. You know, that, well, that's and, all they wanted. Yeah, and this was more of a statistical analysis using behavioral studies and entries mm-hmm. into the medical system over a period of time is what they were doing. So they didn't actually survey anybody, these two, but they looked at the data trend, basically. I mean, obviously, it's I mean it's published in the NIH.gov, which is a government website. Um but yeah, I agree. I just I thought winter was interesting because I always figured winter, cold, dark, longer days, 
Um, you know, you're thinking about lost loved ones and stuff like that. I feared that would be the worst for mental health, but not according to this. Humans are mentally healthier in the summer and the winter. Maybe it's because we're eating more. You know, Americans were always happy when we're eating more. So this is true. Maybe, maybe that's why. True. And also, uh, contrary to the whole of thinking of of lose of the ones that you lost, you're also spending a lot more time with family in those three months of winter than than more. So maybe that's what's affecting. The, the winter winter time months and honestly the healthier in the summer is vacation um the peak time for americans to take vacation if i remember reading this correctly is july and august so that makes wow. sense that in the summer people have better mental quality of health and physical because people are out traveling and stuff like that i'll be very honest with you i'm always happiest when i'm looking forward to days off yeah me too that um, does my mental health a whole world of good let me tell you well see and that's another thing that it doesn't kind of take into account you and i work year-round there mm-hmm. is no summer break, which it, it took me a second to realize that because my neighbor is a teacher, an educator. My parents were educators. Um, my mom most of the time would have the summer off. Sometimes she'd do summer school. Um, and my dad eventually started picking up. They started offering year-round contracts so he could work through the summer as well. Um, so he started doing that. But it was a weird concept to think that both my wife, myself, and you, and maybe uh, does your significant other also work year-round too? All year long, yep. Yeah, so it's it's one of those things. It's like we we don't get a break. We don't get these holidays. We don't get summer breaks off. So to us, it's just it's just the cycle of days off, is what it is. We're just looking for you know the days off, the days off, the days off. Yep. Um, and now, her company does shut down twice a year. Once normally around Thanksgiving, and mm-hmm. the other is around Juneish, May June. Okay. But she still has to go to work. They have educational yeah. days and cleaning days. They got to, um, and like all the broken machinery gets repaired and stuff like that. So even though the company is shut down from what it does, they're still working. And in fact, I think yeah. she's working Christmas Eve this year. Yeah. So, and the, so that's also taking it. I'm wondering if that's being taken into account because I feel like if someone would have like the whole summer off, then their mental health would be a little bit better or physical health versus, uh, you know, adults like us that literally just we work year round, and I get like two weeks of vacation every year, basically right now. So, which mine is coming up in spring because I like spring, and we're also going on a cruise. But that's I'm wondering if that if they factored that in at all. Probably not, because there's when probably you start doing not. That, when you start doing that, you start throwing in so many factors. Like when we were talking, <laughs> when we were talking about um in a previous episode, when we were talking about is uh, Nightmare Before Christmas a Christmas movie or is it a uh halloween movie and i was like well if you thought about this or the intent of this and we're just like wait a second we're introducing so many variations into this we're not sure it's gonna get out of control so i don't think they probably factored that in there but according to the 2009 health study humans are physically healthier in the summer than in winter and humans are mentally healthier in the summer and winter um so that kind of just goes to show that maybe that springtime in terms of health our body likes it better but um, the majority of the United States, well, not a majority, but 1,600 participates in Minnesota on the CBS uh, thing said 45% enjoy fall. And I've seen that number pretty high across the across the board. So I think fall, from what I've seen, is overall the Americans' favorite time of year. So with that, uh, that concludes episode number 10, Barbecue or Fire Pit. We thank you all for joining us and hope you've enjoyed the talk show. If you want to stay up to date with the show and industry news, follow us on Twitter at Torque and Thrust Talk Show. It's all in the ticker tape down below. So that's at Torque. 
the letter N thrust TS torque in thrust TS on Twitter. That's where a lot of our updates with uh, aviation, gaming and automotive news will get reposted on the daily. Um, so you don't have to wait for the whole week to see what we're going to be talking about. And then if you'd like to save the show for on-the-go entertainment and news, follow and turn on notifications for the talk show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Feel free to follow me on YouTube, Twitch, and TikTok at Captain Bill Official, And also follow Tommy as well on YouTube, Twitch, and TikTok at Level Flight Simulations. Uh, we will be live on YouTube, Twitch, and Twitter next week on Saturday. Once again, December 16th, December 16th excuse me, we'll be live December 16th, 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern. And uh, we're going to be discussing ugly sweaters is what we're going to be talking about. This isn't ugly. This is actually one of my cool ones. I got a, I got an ugly one I can go grab. But that's what we're going to be uh, discussing with uh, next week. So on behalf of the Torque and Thrust Talk Show, I am Bill. I am Tommy. And thank you all for joining us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>